Hello and welcome to this PSG Think Big series podcast. In this program, Alicia Seckham speaks to Pierre de Foss about the future of South Africa's youth. Welcome to the Think Big series brought to you by PSG. I'm Alicia Seckham. Well, as we celebrate Youth Month, today we pay particular attention to the future of South Africa's youth. Now, South Africa is, of course, fortunate to have a youthful nation, but the recent first quarter unemployment statistics pertaining to young people is cause for concern. 9.58 million young people aged between 15 and 34 years old are not in education and not in employment. And when it comes to drawing more young people into the economy, the focus well has to be on education. So why is education viewed as the game changer for the youth? And how are we rising to the challenge? That's what's up for discussion today. And as we have this conversation, remember, the aim of the Think Big series is to bring our audiences independent insights that help them in turn formulate their own opinions on some of our country's most pressing issues. Today, I talk to Pierre de Foss. Pierre is the Claude Leon Foundation Chair in Constitutional Governance and Head of the Department of Public Law at the University of Cape Town. He serves on the board of PEM South Africa and on the Advisory Council for the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution. He's the author of the blog Constitutionally Speaking and is a regular media commentator on constitutional law matters. And he talks to us today. Pierre, thanks so much for joining us uh, this morning. So, so education is viewed as a game changer for the youth. How are you rating South Africa in rising to the challenge in developing, providing, and then leveraging off an effective education system, one to 10? Uh, it's uh, it's uh, difficult to answer because it depends very much who we are speaking about. Um, it's probably an eight for people who are in the middle class. Um, who has the ability to get a relatively, well, even excellent education at school and then go on to excellent universities like my university at UCT. But for people who live in uh, poorer areas, disproportionately black because of the uh, apartheid history, um, the opportunities for educational development is much less. So there is this huge divide with, as with so many other things in South Africa. And the problem is that because the divide is about education and education is one of the things that is supposed to overcome the divide, it, it, what happens is that it perpetuates a system where there are really two uh, streams of people in society and one much more likely to succeed than the other. Here, and safe to assume the COVID years have made this even more apparent, vastly widening that gap between the haves and the have-nots, even if access to education is enshrined as a constitutional right. So how big is the problem we face triggered by this unequal access that you've highlighted? Yes, so, so the, the problem is humongous in the sense that uh, if we want a society that is going to be more or less stable, that is going to be more or less therefore fair, um, we need to do something about the inequality and the inequality in education uh, makes it very difficult to do that. And that is bad for everyone. It's bad for people who can't get the education. For those of us who are in the middle classes, whose, uh, maybe whose children go to good schools and university, it's also an issue because 
um, it's not sustainable to live in a society where 30 or 40 percent of population don't have education, don't have jobs, um, and maybe five or 10 percent of the population pay all the income tax. Um, and, and uh, you know, and, and it doesn't make sense. And it is not good uh, for the political system because uh, this kind of inequality and injustice is also likely to create uh, political instability in the country. Yeah. Pierre, we'll, we'll be getting to the do, doing in just a bit. Before we do, as dire as the state of affairs was already pre-COVID, how long before you see things getting back to even pre-COVID yeah. levels? I mean, yeah. do those yeah. who have suffered the brunt of it yeah. ever catch up? So in education, there is a big problem in that once one is behind, falls behind at school, grade one, grade two, grade three, or grade eight, it's difficult to catch up, especially if you don't have additional resources. Uh, so you don't have parents, uh, special les lessons and whatever. So I fear that they, it is for some people, it's going to be difficult to catch up at all. If you were in a school uh, where the, the schooling was uh, suspended for many months or where you only could come to the school one day a week or two day a week, um, that kind of thing for two years at a foundational level, especially in the, in, at certain parts of the, uh, of the high school and primary school, it's difficult to catch up. So I, I hope like, it can be done. I, you know, I'm not an expert and I don't know exactly what happens in each school, but it's something to worry about that some people might actually fall through the cracks because of COVID and because of what happened in the lockdown. Of course, as you say, Pierre, access to resources like online capabilities stand front and center, you know, the, the but the problems and the challenges run much deeper than that, right? We had a recent survey by FNB Innovation Edge and the Department of Basic Education find that more than half of four to five-year-olds aren't meeting the expected early learning and or physical growth standards for their age and will start grade R at a considerable disadvantage with you know, the possible long-term implications for their education. Now, the department says this is information that will work at, uh, to allow it to track progress in providing integrated services that lead to improved child outcomes over, let's say, the next 10 years. Are you convinced? You know, it's, it's a big problem in the sense that in the Constitution, there's a right to basic education for everyone and also a right for further education that the state must reasonably provide. Um, the, the adequacy, the quality of that education is not the same for everyone. Um, and some of this has to do with politics. It is, has to do with the management of the education system, with the influence, uh, inappropriately and corrupt influence sometime of some union members in the education system. So having technical solutions is good, it can help, but without solving the political problem, uh, which is that, the, that those uh, in government must make the difficult decision that, the decisions that might anger some of their allies to ensure that the schools, especially the schools that at the moment are struggling, have excellent administrators, excellent headmasters, so that they can also prosper. Otherwise, we just perpetuate the inequality.
as you say, because there's simultaneously massive hurdles to clear along the way, you know, structural impediments, resources or lack thereof, and where they are available, access to those resources are a massive challenge. We're talking infrastructure, bricks and mortar type stuff, to adequate teaching skills, as you say, to learning aids, you know, textbooks. So how much of the problem is that sheer political will that you've highlighted? How much is a budgetary problem yeah. where investment is needed? Y yes, so it is, of course, it is both and more. Um, the problem with the, there is clearly a problem with uh, um, lack of resources and money. I mean, to give every school a, a library, to make sure that there are facilities for sport, to make sure that there are um, chemical uh, labs and so on, that costs a lot of money. But we know that the money on the infrastructure side is not the only problem. We still have many schools without running water, with, with a bucket toilet system. And it's been promised since 2006 or seven that it will be eradicated within a year. It hasn't been done. And that is a management issue more than uh, a, a budget issue. So budgets are important, but much more could be done with available resources if the state was efficient, not corrupt, um, and so on. <laughs> and yet, Pierre, we've got Education Minister Angie Macheja looking to implement a specialist subject curriculum. You know, it plans to see learners enroll for subjects like agriculture and maritime. There's a long list of subjects that are being explored here. Now, that's been gazetted for public comment. What's your comment? How much of a solution do you see this really offering, given the context? Yeah. So the, this is a difficult question because on the one hand, there is a problem perhaps in our whole education system that it is geared towards a certain kind of outcome. It's very elite uh, based in the sense that we assume that people will go to university or to the Technicon, whatever it's called now, and there will be this kind of education that is real education and there's a kind of snobbish uh, looking down on other kinds of very good education be, becoming uh, uh, in a more technical field. So if this extended curriculum is going to help with um, uh, with the second stream of education and help uh, to produce more people, which we, our economy, desperately need. We need people who know about farming. We need people who know about uh, fixing cars and, uh, you know, all of those things. And if this helps with that, it will be a good thing. The problem is, it's always the implementation. Will, is it not too ambitious? Who's going to teach these courses? Will they be actually of a high quality? So if you don't implement them properly, it won't work. And that's exactly where the debate's been triggered, right? Where you've got some people saying that this is a stopgap measure, that while we are expanding the establishment of focus schools to cater for learners with these special talents, uh, with these aptitudes across a wider range, we're ignoring the fact that we haven't gotten the basics right and that a back-to-basics focus needs to be in place first. So do you agree, or is it more a case of the two not necessarily being mutually exclusive? Yes, I don't really know, to be honest, but my hunch is always that one should be careful not to say it's either the one or the other. Of, co of course, the basics should be, uh, should be attended to and should be fixed. Um, but that doesn't mean one should also not start thinking about the medium and the long term. 
the, one of the problems we've had in South Africa is policies are developed and three years, five years, there's a new policy and there's not really a long-term vision about not only what we want, but how we're going to get there. And so maybe the problem with this curriculum is more about um, it, it is, yes, this is what we want, but how are we going to implement it? How are we going to make sure it's sustainable? How is it going to fit into the whole system? That is not really uh, uh, thought about sufficiently. Especially where many, many of these subjects are aimed at directly helping those school leaving pupils who won't necessarily complete grade 12 or enter university. So the intent is clear. The rationale is very evident, right? Pierre, how much more effective does an initiative like this become if you consider bringing in teaching in home languages? And again, this is something that's triggered rigorous debate over the years. So what are the pros and the cons here? Incorporating yeah. mother tongue languages in schools wherever practical, and then that being a constitutional obligation. Yes. So language is a strange and interesting thing because all the studies, educational studies show that um, having uh, education in your own language, um, of course, with people who are skilled in actually teaching in that language, is an enormous uh, educational benefit. It's, it's really an educational benefit. At the same time, the society, the, the economy is done in English. So a multilingual kind of approach is what it seems to me what the experts say is appropriate. Um, the problem is, of course, that um, we see language, uh, uh, languages, indigenous South African languages, almost as something to shy away from, that it is a deficit if, you, if you're going into speaking that. The standard or the measurement is whether you speak English and how well you speak it, which is of course preposterous. There are 11 official languages, one of them is English. Um, so I think it's important to use to, to acknowledge that multilingualism, not only for people who speak indigenous languages, but also for white South Africans who most of us don't speak Isikosa, Isizulu, that we know that we have a deficit in not being able to communicate in the rich variety of languages that are so yeah, where you see parameters shifting at school level, you see the parameters then needing to shift at tertiary level and in the workplace as well, you know, how uh, language needs to form part of enrollment and employment criteria, for example. Yes, so, so I think if you, say, apply to come to the law school at UCT, then one of the criteria for whether you are an excellent candidate to be a lawyer is how many languages do you speak that, uh, that your clients are going to speak one day. Um, and that would be not only English and Afrikaans, but also Isizulu, Ikota, all of the other languages. So um, uh, that captures then the fact that being uh, able to speak more languages is a skill. It's an extra additional thing that will make you better at the job, especially jobs that you're going to interact with. The, Have you been having conversations, Pierre, at UCT, for example, about this kind of approach being adopted with the private sector, for that matter? Because it really would be interesting to, uh, you know, gauge response if there are any mindset shifts happening just yet. There is ongoing discussion, of course. Um, the discussions have been slightly politically bedeviled because of the odd position of Afrikaans. 
um, because you know there are Afrikaans univer universities that used to teach very predominantly in Afrikaans, and there's a lot of politics around that, uh, and people feeling that the use of Afrikaans excludes black people from especially higher education. But um, the the difficulty is, is that there really should be a fundamental change in view about language and multilingualism from the, uh, the lower primary school through the university system through the, the private sector and that for some from reasons that is not always so clear to me there seems to be just an acceptance that we're all going to speak english um, uh, and that's of course to the detriment uh, of in some way of us all because something gets lost if we all speak in a language that for most of us are not a home language yeah, that said, how do we develop a, a system then that is more so supportive of going down this route where necessary textbooks, you know, yeah. supportive of an education system entrenched in English and Afrikaans needs to play catch up pretty fast? Yes. So you need to, uh, once again, resources need to be invested in this. Um, so there need to be political will, they need to be backing for these kind of things, and they need to be resources uh, put in, into this. Uh, not that we ever want to follow what the, the National Party regime did, but they were very effective in promoting Afrikaans as the language. Of course, there were only two languages, and they invested huge amounts of money to build schools, to train teachers, to be able to teach in Afrikaans, to write textbooks in Afrikaans, and so on. We don't necessarily want that, but thinking more about the benefits of multilingualism um, and how we, a bit of investment could really um, make a difference uh, and, and boost people who, who, who speak as a home language, not necessarily only English. Yeah, look, we've just explored two possible measures that could be implemented. If they are implemented in concert, how quickly do you see it translating to converting those who sit outside the jobs market into the workplace? This is, the, the problem is, uh, once again, uh, goes back to what I said in the beginning about the inequality in the system. Some of these changes will uh, benefit uh, uh, people who already have access to some kind of education that is of a certain, at least a moderate quality. But for people uh, at the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, who do not have access to any kind of quality education, it's probably, and this is a terrible thing to think about, it's not going to make a difference. Um, it is uh, the, the economist, the late economist, um, some Peter Blanche once gave the metaphor in which he said, South Africa is like a three-story house where 30% of the population are in the basement and there's no ladder from the basement to the first floor. If you're on the first floor, there's a ladder to the second. And that's the problem, is that the, the people who are the most vulnerable are the ones least likely to have access to the kind of education that would So, Pierre, where the quota system, for example, was brought in as a mechanism to address inequality issues, you know, to level the playing field, so to speak, is it working? What's your view on the policy and its effectiveness? You, when you say quota system, you mean? Whether it's criteria for getting into universities uh, on, uh, you know, yeah. on, on a racial basis yeah. or finding employment for that matter. It is, I 
feel that these kinds of measures are absolutely fundamentally important um, because it does uh, level the playing field uh, for some people. Um, and it does help to eradicate the effects of past unfair discrimination because uh, apartheid, uh, it, it carries forward the, the consequences of apartheid is still with us. Some of us benefit from that lingering effects, benefits of apartheid. And so addressing that is important. It probably does not help the 30% of the of black South Africans who are really the most, the poorest and the most vulnerable. Um, so that is important, but it on its own cannot fix the, the unfairness in the education. Pierre, I ask a question because while the intent is to support a leveling of the playing field for those who sit on the outside of that grouping with education, with skills, with access, What's their reality? Because they're amongst those sitting outside the job market as well, even if they're the minority. Yes, so the first question is, of course, uh, whether people who have, uh, have benefited from education, um, who are educated and now are on the so-called wrong side of affirmative action and redress measures, to what extent it impacts on them. Um, if you look at the statistics, uh, as, especially for people in senior leadership positions, it's still overwhelmingly uh, is disproportionately white. So it's not as if people can't get a job because you are white and there's redress. Of course, in some areas it is uh, difficult. Um, and the Constitutional Court um, said in a judgment, data star judgment, which was about land re re and redistribution, that if you had a fundamentally unjust system from which some of us benefited and other people uh, didn't only not benefit, were fundamentally disadvantaged to fix that, it means that those of us who benefited will have to pay a certain price, so to speak, that we there will be some hardship um, because other it's the only way to fix the problem. You, if you want to make an omelet, you have to break the egg. The constitution requires that that has to be done in a way that is not uh, uh, fundamentally places an undue burden on the group that is outside. Um, uh, at least on paper, in law. I don't think the existing policies do do that. They do not place an undue burden. I have to ask though, is a faster brain drain the consequence? Um, well, there's a brain drain for many reasons. Probably this is one of them. Um, there are there are reasons also for, for the brain drain, including a lack of electricity and whatever else might be. But you what you what your question uh, emphasize again that these are very difficult questions because we're living in a society that has uh, the consequences of 350 years of colonialism and apartheid to deal with. It is complicated, it's difficult, difficult decisions have to be made and I think the, the it is important for us when we think about these things also to think about what is best for the country because if, they, no, if there's no political stability, if they is if there's profound injustice, it is bad for everybody. It's bad for business, um, and so a kind of social solidarity, 
quantity. Difficult as it is, if you are the one who is on the receiving end of a redress measure, is really important. Absolutely. And as you say, Pierre, it's a complex issue. There's so many factors that come to bear uh, when these repercussions unfold, right? As much as we talk about those with education, with skills, with access, are they being equipped with the right skills for the workplace, the kind of skills the workplace of 2022 and yeah. beyond demands? You know, is yeah. the curriculum shift here happening fast enough? Yeah. This is also an, another huge uh, question and discussion that one finds at many universities, in uh, especially yeah, at the higher education level, because on the one hand, the skills that people re need really are beyond just technical skills. If you are going to be a lawyer, you, it's not only what you, your knowledge of a practical legal rule is, you need to have a a, a ability to reason, to think, to do research, all of those things. And there's a tension in higher education between wanting uh, to develop these kind of high level skills on the one hand and giving people the opportunity to acquire sort of factual kind of knowledge or practical knowledge. And so I think we struggle with that because I, people either want to just uh, teach, say, if you're a lawyer, you want to teach people how to draft papers, um, how to serve uh, uh, the papers on somebody. While maybe there's also, on the other hand, the need to think about, okay, what is behind this rule? How can we, on our side, to defend our client, develop, have the rule developed? So there are different skills, and I think we struggle so with getting the right balance between practicality and high level reasoning uh, skills that people need. Even though the struggle is real, we start to see some shifts emerging. There's been a focus recently on entrepreneurship. We've had the department say that about 540 schools are going to be monitored nationally for implementing compulsory entrepreneurship education. It's an initiative that's being driven by President Sol Ramaphosa and is expected to officially form part of the curriculum by uh, by 2024. How much of a game changer is that? Because right at the top, you rated uh, South Africa eight in the one category, very low in the other, in rising to the challenge in uh, developing, providing, and then leveraging off an effective education system. Yes, so that maybe is, is part of the discussion we had earlier that the education system needs to cater for people with different skills, with different interests, with uh, uh, different abilities and opportunities. And so if, uh, once again, the question is, will the programs be thought through carefully? Will they be of a sufficient quality? Will they be uh, rolled out efficiently? If it, these are, the program is rolled out, um, it might help. But it, it's one small part of, of the big system, so one shouldn't think that just because this happens, that that will fix everything, of course. But uh, on the face of it, it, it might help if it is Absolutely. Well, bottom line here is that South Africa is not going to realize its development goals of eliminating income poverty and reducing inequality without addressing uh, this challenge. Uh, last question to you. How at risk is the stability of the democratic project in your books as things stand now? The, the, you know, democracy is messy. <laughs> 
Um, the problem is, is that democracy is really under threat across the world. Uh, if you look at the United States, um, the, the Donald Trump is still claiming that he won the election that he lost with about four to five million votes. Um, so there's the, and there's a there's a suspicion of people with expertise, people in government who wants to govern and don't just want to shout slogans. And South Africa is not spared that. Um, I would think that at the moment the system is sort of more or less holding. Um, we see that at local government level there are elections, parties are kicked out of the city of, uh, of uh, uh, the governance. Was, uh, the governors of the municipality. So the system sort of is holding. If we don't do enough about the inequality and the sort of uh, devastation of unemployment and so on, uh, it might not be so forever. Uh, so I'm sort of optimistic that the system, despite everything, is still holding. It's a bit surprising, but there's a lot of work to do to make sure that it continues and it Absolutely. Well, Pierre, let's leave it on that optimistic note. Uh, thank you so much for having joined us today. And thank you, our viewers, for tuning in as well. Remember that this is a webinar that is available via podcast. The series is free. It's shareable. It's open to anyone interested, whether you're a PSG client or not. The social media campaign is hashtag ThinkBigPSG. So please do uh, further your engagement with us. We do welcome your feedback and look out for the next speaker in the Think Big series. From me, Alicia Seven, it's bye for now. Thank you.